Hello and welcome to the EDH RecCast. My name is Joey Schultz and I'm joined as always by my fantastic co-hosts. First up, he would like to ask you a question. It's Matt Morgan. So recently I spent my entire life savings on a whole bunch of pasta and I think it was worth every penny. I, I yep that's uh that that sounds like a, a really delicious investment Matt I love it I I'm carb loaded for the future <laughs> excellent up next he uh, heard that wizards really likes crossovers so he decided to put some red eyes on the new card black dragon that's Dana Roach um as someone who primarily knows D and D from the cartoon in the eighties I am really disappointed that we didn't get class cards for Cavalier or Acrobat. <laughs> that is a deep cut <laughs> a, a very very deep cut indeed and i've never seen that cartoon so all of those also went over my head somehow <laughs> so it goes anyway this is the edh rec cast edh rec is the best deck building resource on the web for the commander format compiling data from deck lists all over the internet to provide helpful recommendations for new commander decks and here on the edh rec cast what we like to do is give all that data a little more context hey dana what is it that we're talking about in this week's episode? We are going to be talking about the uh, Adventures in the Forgotten Realms uh, core set we got this year. Yes, yeah. It's another set review, y'all. Aren't you excited? <laughs> I mean, we, we decided it's been so long since we've gotten to do a set <laughs> review episode that uh, Watsy gave us a whole other one to do, and we're so excited. Uh Yes, so there is the new D&D crossover set that is taking the space of a core set uh, that would normally be in Magic Rotation this year. And there's a bunch of cards that we want to discuss, so this will be part one of our set review for the main set of Adventures in the Forgotten Realms. So there's a lot to go through, basically. Real quick, before we get into the actual reviewing of these new cards, let's pause and give a huge thank you to the folks at the Command Zone, because they handle all the post-production work on our podcast and make it look as awesome as it does. So thank you so much. And of course, we want to thank our sponsors for the show as well. Yeah, the EDH RecCast is sponsored by Car- Card Kingdom and a TCG player, which along with Dunder Mifflin make up my three favorite sellers of cardboard <laughs> on the internet. Just go to EDH Rec and click on the card in question and choose the vendor link down below. Doing so supports both the site and the show. And if you'd prefer to support the show directly, you can do so over at patreon.com slash EDH RecCast. We have patron tiers of all sorts of levels. We have patron exclusive content every single month. And we even have a very special tier where we shout out a patron just for being a patron because that's how much we appreciate all of our patrons. So Brandon Hartman, thank you so much. You are a special patron of the week. Um, we definitely appreciate all of your support. So thank you so dang much. Thank you. And let's get to our main topic now, talking about adventures in the Forgotten Realms. And I almost forgot about it, but um, I'm not as good at the dead jokes as Matt is. Okay, so we're going to get into <laughs> These realms were not said. forgotten by by this this podcast. We can say that, yeah. Yes. Well, how, how could we? They're, they're pumping out so many sets that we want to talk about all of these cards because there's some interesting stuff going on in there. But it is kind of like, weren't we just here with Modern Horizons 2 like a week and a half ago? So it's, you know, it's getting pretty intense for sure. Yeah, I don't think the ink was dry on Modern Horizons 2 by the time uh, previous four Adventures in the Forgotten Realms started coming out. So yeah, it's it's been a, a numbers crunch for sure, just with the amount of sets that have been coming out um, in the past, I would say, six months, seven months. Yeah, it's it has been a lot. Let's do one other thing that I feel like we probably are obligated to do at this point um, before we get into the main, you know, the, the main stuff. Here on the show, the three of us, we're not... Um, savants of the dragon and dungeon <laughs> situation um dana apparently has watched the 80s cartoon but a lot of the flavor stuff that's going on in this set is it's kind of going to be you know going over our heads i think we'll be evaluating this mostly from the is this good in edh type of vantage point as opposed to oh this is a great callback to this other thing because we just we just don't know the dungeons and dragon situation all that much which is regretful but at the same time we know a lot about edh so we should be able to nail that uh that type of evaluation i think yeah, I, I think so. Um, you know, ironically enough, the the first card we're going to talk about here um, is a card from the actual cartoon, or at least it popped up in the cartoon. So I'm actually <laughs> slightly familiar with Tiamat, the legendary creature dragon god we get. Um, T- All right, sweet deal. Let's get into the legendary creatures. Take off. So um, Tiamat is two and Wooberg, so we have um, seven mana total. For a 7-7 with flying, and Tiamat says whenever Tiamat enters the battlefield, if you cast it, search your library for up to five dragon cards not named Tiamat that each have different names, reveal them, put them into your hand, then shuffle. 
So when you uh, cast this, you just go fill your hand with dragons that you are going to then presumably cheat into play using something like the Ur Dragon or um, Kali the Vast. Um, it's pretty, pretty strong, I think. This is a bonkers effect. You will certainly be seeing this card in the Ur Dragon, but I dare say that it is also the kind of card that could potentially you know, compete with the Ur Dragon in terms of popularity. Like, this is a really bonkers ability. And if you go and find Morophon the Boundless, which is a changeling that therefore counts as a dragon and can reduce the cost of all of the colored pips in the dragons that you play, that can help you free roll different dragons that you get with Tiamat's ability. So you can play a free Scion of the Ur Dragon or a free Niv-Mizzet Reborn. There's some absolutely disgusting chance that this thing is going to be breaking. Yeah, it's an interesting design, but I also don't know if it's something we haven't really seen before. So I think there will be a a lot of overlap with mm -hmm. just a lot of the strategies people do i mean obviously dragon tribal is kind of a no-brainer and the uh the five dragon cards not named tiamat i mean that's <laughs> yeah. pretty easy to do one might say in, in a in a singleton <laughs> format so um I mean, drawing five cards and tutoring up five cards, that's nothing to shake your head at, though. Yeah, this is a powerful ability. And when it comes to Dragon Tribal in five colors, you have the option of whether you want to have the tempo game that the Ur Dragon provides, or if you have specific dragons that you definitely want to go find with Tiamat, because it will certainly allow you to do so. So pretty straightforward for the uh, different dragon stuff going on there. Matt, how about our next Selesnia commander? This one pique your interest? You are Mr. Selesnia. Um, it... It's interesting. I'm not sure how I feel about it yet. I haven't had a chance to process it. Um, but Drist Doerdurden, I believe I said that right. Um, three in Selesny, so green and a white for a legendary elf ranger. It's a 3-3. Three, three. Um, has double strike. And then when Drist enters the battlefield, you create, uh, I'm going to butcher this name, uh, Gunwyvar. I think maybe I, I'm pronouncing it Guinevere, but if in case Guinevere, um, the most like we put we put the disclaimer of, hey, we don't really play all that much D&D &D and stuff, but we probably didn't need the disclaimer because of this card right here and how if we didn't get off, give off the vibes that I've never <laughs> adventured in Forgotten Realms, um, this is it right here. So um, but anyways, I thought Durst Dorden was the lead singer of the Cranberries this whole time. <laughs> That's, that, that's a joke that I'm glad that Matt got. <laughs> that is such a <laughs> deep completely cut. Over my <laughs> such a deep cut. Um, but luckily, this this card does not make a zombie like the other one might. Um, oh so anyway, so when Drist enters the battlefield, you create a 4-1 legendary uh, green cat creature token with trample. And whenever uh, whenever a creature dies, if it had a power greater than Drist power, uh, you put a number of plus one plus one counters on Drist equal to the difference. So um, kind of like Azmir, Holy Avenger, plus one plus one counters and creatures are dying. Um, I'm really not sure how to feel about it, though. The double strike is nice, but... Um, I'm not really sure how to process this. Where do you guys land on this? This strikes me as a very powerful creature. Like a double striker is, especially on a commander, that's nothing to scoff at ever. Creating the token is nice. To me, honestly, the last ability kind of reads as a thing that I think will distract folks uh, just a little bit. Like that's really powerful ability. If you play something like a Force of Savagery, which is an, uh, a three mana eight zero, so it immediately dies. And you could pump that up with different effects like Anthems as a way to make sure that that creature survives. But you can instead just let it die. And then Dritz will just take all of those plus one counters for itself. But you can also just give a bunch of equipment to this thing and it will be double striking you into paradise. This is a really, really powerful effect. And it comes with the legendary four one. I mean, because why not? Like the plus one counters, the other creatures, you can do some cute stuff with that last ability, but even just killing your opponent's stuff is going to power this up a little bit. And just double striking with really cool equipment, that seems like enough. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I feel like what we'll wind up seeing when all is said and done is probably this is kind of a Voltron commander, um, particularly with equipment, like you said, Joey, being able to throw swords on there that will allow it to poke through for damage because of the protection and then get double procs and most of the abilities you see from those swords of X and Y feels really, really strong. It's going to get just through the purpose of through creatures dying so you know people are going to be throwing indestructible equipment on here so it survives board wipes and then you know casting that wrath of god kind of effect to further buff it so i, I think it's going to be a really strong voltron commander if that's something you want to do with equipment in colors that aren't boros where we usually see that effect yeah, I, I didn't realize until we we're just talking about it just now. It's it's just whenever a creature dies, it doesn't have to be a creature you control, mm -hmm. which is something I think I was kind of expecting to be on a Selesnia commander. Um, so that is nice. Um, Force of Savagery was the, the card that originally popped into mind. Um, so yeah, having an 8-0 that instantly gives your, your commander 5 plus 1 plus 1 counters, uh, that's a pretty potent effect. So I do think there's several ways you can 
um, build the deck, whether it's, you know, put peer in there and have some plus one, plus one counter synergies, uh, or if you want to do the Voltron route, I mean, there's, there's, there's definitely options. Um, I'm just not sure if you're able to focus on one specifically because there's so much going on on the card. I feel like this is the kind of thing that maybe Dana would build because then Dana would be able to play his favorite green combat trick, which is Berserk, to buff <laughs> someone else's yeah. attacking creature up, doubling its power, and then that creature is destroyed at end of combat, and Dritz will just go straight to the moon with all of those extra plus one counters. So there's some clever tricks that you can do if you're also trying to be a little bit political like that, which is kind of fun, actually. But this mostly seems like a, a big Voltron-y kind of beater, and that's pretty cool for Selesnia. Well, up next, we have Minsk's Beloved Ranger... Um, this would be in Naya colors, three mana total. Um, for a human ranger, 3-3, three, three, when Minsk Barbarian Ranger enters the battlefield, create Boo, a legendary 1-1 one, one red hamster creature token with trample and haste. And you can spend X, and until end of turn, target creature you control has base power and toughness XX and becomes a giant in addition to its other types. And this is a sorcery only ability. So you have a little tiny hamster that you turn into a giant hamster and swing at people. And that seems pretty neat. Excuse me, Boo is actually a ghost from the Mario games. I feel like I'm misreading this. Is that just me? I'm just from listening to a couple of Vorthos uh, casts the last few weeks. I know Boo is a miniature giant space hamster. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and you can pump it up with Minsk's, yeah. with with the with the man from Minsk's his ability, that guy, um, which is really cool. But I almost don't even know if that's the thing that I want to pump up with this ability. Like when I see X and you can change the base power of a creature, my mind goes straight to infect. Is it because I'm a horrible person? I don't know. I feel like I've got I've got like a blight mamba or a plague mirror or whatever that's just a one one with infect, and then I get a bunch of mana and I use this guy to pump them into a ten power and I attack someone like. That seems really good to me as a way to use this ability. I mean, those those are decent options. Even if you're just making your you know your entire team fairly unblockable with stuff like Champion of Lamholt, where it makes it very difficult to block once Champion gets pretty big. Um, I'm not a huge fan of having to pay X to make the creature XX, um, but you're also in green, so it's not like you know you're going to be troubled to make a whole bunch of mana. Um, you have treasures now in red and white, so like there's going to be all sorts of different ways that you can make a whole bunch of mana to activate X for a whole big number. That definitely, yeah, I, I can totally see that. There's also probably other ways that like, if you get infinite mana, I'm sure that this is a thing that this guy can do. Like a spike shot elder, for example, can deal damage equal to its power to any target. So that could be another potential outlet for this. Although then again, with infinite mana, spike shot elder already does that himself, even if he doesn't have a bunch of power. So maybe that's a bit more. I'm just going to revert back to infect, actually. Or hear me out. Hear me out, Joey. Um, give spike shot elder infect. <laughs> and then use it in mid. There we go. Yeah, so there there we go. Cool. And this also strikes me, like the, the commanders that we discuss in our set reviews, they tend to be the ones that we think the most players will gravitate towards and that, you know, in a year's time, for example, these will be the most popular commanders from that set that we remember. And since this is a three-color commander, that definitely bodes well in terms of popularity. We always see that multicolored commanders rise to the top of the pile, but there's also like an adorability factor that is certainly <laughs> going to play into Minsk's numbers here. Yeah, if there was like a meme factor like we had with Chatterfang from the last set, Modern Horizons <laughs> to like minks making a a legendary hamster um definitely fulfills the role i think there's gonna be quite a few people that are gonna make the the silly boo decks and uh i'm here for that for sure absolutely so moving on to another commander that we think will be really dang popular from this set let's talk about volo guide to monsters this is the simic one so one of the reasons that players might build cards is because of an adorability factor and some cool stuff that you can unlock and then sometimes there's just powerful commanders like this one volo guide to monsters is a four mana three two human wizard in simic Whenever you cast a creature spell that does not share a creature type with a creature you control or a creature card in your graveyard, you copy that spell. And a copy of a creature becomes a token. So this is a way to double up all of your creatures, which is really, really dang intense. If you've got the enter the battlefield abilities of an eternal witness, for example, you'll get two eternal witnesses, provided that you don't have any other cards that match the types of eternal witness on the battlefield or in your graveyard at the time that you cast those cards. We've all seen what doubling up ETB effects can do in decks like Yarok before. This is a crazy nasty ability. Uh, yeah, it's really effective, but but also it's interesting because of the clause where you don't want them to share a creature type. So I, I'm guessing people are going to be forced to, for the most part, kind of run singleton, even in terms of, of type. 
um, just to guarantee they get the proc more often than not. Um, it'll be interesting to see what the selection of creatures then winds up being because you don't want to double up on anything very often. So I, I do really like that restriction. I think that's going to give us some varied decks in a way we often kind of don't see with these commanders that are pointing down a really specific path. Um, you know, you're going to not want to run too many too many of the good wizards with ETBs or too many merfolk or too many elves or what have you. So I, I quite like the restriction, and I'm looking forward to seeing some of these finished decks to see what the selection actually wound up being. Yeah, I, I'm sure there's going to be some real exotic creature types that people mm -hmm. dig up just to make sure there's no overlap. Yeah. Um, like dryads, like Tendershoe Dryad probably will show up, stuff like that, because <laughs> getting a whole bunch of tokens seems pretty powerful, but... I mean, even you put you you know Crater Hoof Behemoth in there to get two of those, and you put your End Race Forerunners to get two of those, so you just have all the overrun effects that you're doubling down on. Oh, um, yeah. I like that Volo is a powerful Simic commander that also has restrictions on there. So yes, you can still do the very powerful things, but like you kind of have to tiptoe around it a little bit. So it's nice, you know, compared to uh, AC Tyrant of Gary Strait, where it's just blatantly powerful this one at least right. you have a few hoops to jump through to get that power surge which i i definitely appreciate and you're you're immediately losing access to i mean kind of to humans and wizards to get that ability mm -hmm. um which i think is interesting i i quite quite like that you really have to be picky so yeah very cool I, I don't know, guys. I'm going to take the opposite stance here. I don't think it's all that difficult to build a deck around this restriction. I feel like a lot of the best creatures already do that. Like, if you just want to run one Sphinx, that's okay. Consecrated Sphinx is able to do that for you. If you just want to run one boar, what other boar were you going to run? You've got your Endraise Forerunners, and that's the only boar that you need. Um, there are some, like kooky kind of uh, creature types that you can look for, like Anthon Mutineer, for example, is a salamander pirate, and that's not the kind of thing that's going to show up on just a regular creature out there. The The main conflict for me seems like, do I want to play Moldrifter as my elemental or Avenger of Zendikar as my elemental? But either one is still pretty dang good. Well, well, Joey, you already mentioned one card that you want to put in this deck that isn't going to work. Like you mentioned Eternal Witness, um, but if YOLO's out, or VOLO, excuse me, um, <laughs> you can YOLO with VOLO for sure. Um, <laughs> but if you, if you have Eternal Witness in the deck, like eternal witness doesn't work with volo because they're both humans so like that automatically oh knocks out a few staples out there right um i do think yeah dana brought up a really good point like knocking out humans and wizards like that takes out a good chunk of like staple type of cards in the commander okay. format already and, and yeah you know could, people could put consecrated sphinx in here yeah it's going to be a great thing to copy but like if all you want to do is copy Consecrated Sphinx, there's decks that allow you to do that way easier than what this one's going to be. Yeah, that's not exactly a new right. thing. Yeah, I, I agree. That that makes sense. There are uh, there's only a couple of other things I guess that I want to uh, mention with Volo is that like if you're casting morph spells which are face down and don't have any creature types, you just get a free blank two two. It's not going to be able to do anything. There's no abilities to it. But like that's another interesting interaction to take advantage of here. I feel like Teamer Sabretooth also needs to be shouted out because that can return the creatures back to your hand. Like I don't know. That seems really good. You can't replay them as long as you've got the other thing on the field because then there would be a copy of the thing that shares the type. But like you can still reclaim those things for later use, which I think is really fascinating. And it's only one creature type cat that you may not have a lot of other stuff. But more to the point, the most important thing for this is that if you've got like a parallel lives effect, remember the copying of a spell that becomes a token is not the same thing as creating a token. So parallel lives won't double up the tokens that this guy is casting, producing, copying, whatever, because it doesn't count as creating. It's a really weird rules interaction, but be very aware of that. Well, that's good to know. So let's actually get into a Demir commander that Shocker, I think is actually kind of interesting, kind of nifty. Um, I know you guys aren't super keen on it, but I've seen a lot of people kind of um, getting some wheels turning on this. So we're going to talk about Xanathar, Guild Kingpin, a four in Demir color, so a blue and a black, for a five, six legendary Beholder. Um, and at the beginning of your upkeep, you choose an opponent, uh, a target opponent, excuse me. Uh, and then until end of turn, that player can't cast spells. Um, and you may look at the top card of their library at any time, and you can ca and you can play the top card of their library and spend mana as though it were any color uh, to cast those spells. This seems kind of fun. Obviously not over webcam. Don't do that, folks. But uh, the 75% ethos, like it's very popular. Like Jason Alt writes all sorts of articles uh, talking about 75% decks where everything kind of scales to what your opponents are doing. This seems like a perfect type of commander for that. 
very reminiscent of send triplets only since you're taking a card off the top of the deck instead of their hand it doesn't have hopefully quite the same amount of feel bads this does strike me as being pretty slow six mana to play and on your next upkeep you get to look at one card off the top of their deck like that's not great value but at the same time folks love beholders like this <laughs> for the for the flavor alone this guy's a standout and i would say it's not even just the feel bads with send triplets um you know I, i've played quite a few games against send triplets decks and what winds up being pretty frustrating is you get in that situation very often where you you have you pass a turn to the send triplets player and if they pick you you look at your hand you're like well i'm gonna lose the one land i have i'm gonna lose this one creature that i that I couldn't cast and I'm going to lose this other thing and then I'm going to have an empty hand when it comes back to me. Um, like, and if they hit you again, like, like you can very easily just wind up essentially hellbent the entire game, particularly if it gets down to one or two people. Um, this doesn't do that, right? Like, when I play that send triplets deck, I find myself feeling like I have to remove it or I'm not going to have a hand and, and therefore, so I don't, so I remove it. It's not even about feeling bad. It's just like strategically I have to have it gone sometimes. This doesn't feel that way. So I, I, there are situations where I'm going to leave the person be and let them play because it's it's not nearly as crippling to allow that to happen as it is with send triplets. Yeah, you're, you're not stripping somebody's hand. Yeah. You're just taking stuff off the top of the deck. Um, and I mean, if you're if you know your play group is playing a more casual thing, like you're only stealing cards that are just as powerful as what they're already playing. Right. Um, which I, I like that aspect. I think the the social aspect of this deck is going to be kind of fun. And also there's some really cool synergy, like uh, scheming symmetry, which would let you an opponent <laughs> tutor up a card. Um, this actually kind of turns into like, do they waste their tutor or do they pick something kind of cool for you to play? Like there's going to be a lot of weird type of interactions that I'm actually kind of looking forward to. Just not over webcam. Um, when we get to play in person again, that's what I'm, I'm going to be really excited to see these Xanathar decks. That is really, really funny. I, I'm just, I'm enchanted that you found a Demir commander that actually kind of like, it, that you enjoy because you usually are just so anti-Demir. You're just so ardent. I just typically like, yeah. am, yes. Um, you might say I saw beauty in the eye of the beholder. <laughs> Good. There it is. That's so good. And and I feel like there's even more synergies that we haven't even addressed here. Like this kind of becomes a gaunty tribal deck sort of situation with stuff like cunning rhetoric that you can throw into here. So you can get just a whole bunch of pilfering from an opponent's library. But also you can do stuff like Paradox Haze or Sphinx of the Second Sun to give yourself additional upkeep triggers with this, which is also pretty darn cool. Yeah, I think this is going to be an interesting deck for sure. I I um, I, I like the possibilities that, that folks are going to find in there. And even if you're just doing like top deck control, like lantern um, control type of decks with lantern of insight, um, even that just something going to be kind of nifty going on. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff going on with this commander. So I'm, I'm glad that, uh, Matt, you could make me see more than I saw before with this beholder, beholder guy. Did that joke work? That joke didn't work at all. It, it? it was a good effort, though. I, I, I <laughs> saw right. what you were doing. All right. (laughs) You just took my joke. Okay. So we're going to move on now. Those were the top five commanders that we anticipate becoming the most popular from this set. But there are, as is apparently tradition now, tons of other legendary creatures from these sets too. And some of them we will address in the monocolored sections that we're about to get to because there are some really cool monocolored legendary creatures in this set for sure. It's just, you know, historically speaking, we've most often seen that the multicolored commanders do tend to be the ones that rise to the top of the heap. But let's get into some monocolors now. Since this is part one of our set review, we'll be discussing three colors here, white, blue, and black. Dana, let's get into some white cards. Are there any that catch your fancy? First up, we have Teleportation Circle, which is three and a white for an enchantment. And it says, at the beginning of your end step, exile up to one target artifact or creature you control, then return that card to the battlefield under its owner's control. Um, so it's Conjurer's Closet that costs one less, but you have to be in white, and it also hits artifacts. Conjurer's Closet at five mana, um, only hitting creatures, is already a pretty popular and very strong card. Um, so for the restriction of being in white, you get more utility out of this. Um, I guess you can't use it to keep someone's creature that you've taken temporarily, which was a trick you see with Conjurer's Closet once in a while, um, because this goes back to the owner's control. But I think for the most part, if you're in a deck that cares about blinking stuff, um, it's worth losing that to have the option to, you know, maybe blink a mana rock back as well in addition to your creatures. Yeah, I, I think decks kind of like Alila Artful Provocateur that relies a little more heavily on ETB effects with artifacts like 
blinking Spinavish saw every single turn. That seems pretty mm-hmm. potent. Um, there's a lot of ETB abilities on artifacts, um, no matter what colors you're playing. But yeah, having this available in white, um, there's a lot of abilities that you can be spamming uh, every turn. And um, I'm kind of interested to see what people are going to dig up with. I'm pretty happy about this one. I, it is kind of funny to me because there's a Thassa Deep Dwelling that has a pretty similar effect here. So the Blink decks themselves have tons of different options for this ability now, which is really great to see. Like that type of redundancy can really make a huge impact to a deck. I really like the idea of also just four value. You can flicker an Icker Wellspring or something like that to keep up mm-hmm. a little bit on guard advantage. I really like this effect, but my favorite use is probably with stuff like Liquid Metal Torque, where you can turn something into an artifact to get a Blink on it when you wouldn't normally be able to, like resetting a Saga, for example. So there's some exciting stuff that you can do here it's not anything that we haven't seen before and yet it's also some stuff that we haven't seen before and that's just a really fun combination yeah it, it could also have some utility in an enchantress deck that happens to be running enchantment creatures because constellation triggers on etb not in cast Ooh. so if you're blinking enchantment creatures you can be getting procs off that as well so i could see it showing up particularly in ones that don't have green like the uh the black white daxos kind of decks as well um I think it's going to pop up in a strange mix of decks. It won't be the kind of card you only see in one. So yeah, I like it a lot. Moving right along, we've got another white rare here called Guardian of Faith that has got some folks talking. This one's a three mana, three two spirit knight with flash and vigilance. And when it enters the battlefield, any number of other target creatures you control phase out. Sort of like the Teferi's protection sort of mechanic that we're used to seeing, only it's just your creatures. This is a pretty nifty little defensive creature. I don't know if I'm personally as in love with it as I've seen a whole bunch of folks, but it is pretty nice tech against a Cyclonic Rift because this will enter, phase your other creatures out, make it so that they don't bounce back and then the guardian of faith would bounce back to your hand so you can just do it again for another board wipe that might happen that's pretty nice anti-cyclonic rift tech i gotta say um yeah i, I think ghost way and eerie interlude are are really good cards if you are playing in certain environments they can save you from board wipes they can save you from rift you can use them to proc etbs as well the problem with them is tokens disappear when you when you blink that kind of thing um so guardian of faith gives you a way to have an effect like that and still have your tokens survive and still have everything um it has counters on it or something those counters will 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 stay in effect so like it's a way to preserve a, a a board state if you want to have this kind of protective thing there and the fact that it's a spirit and a knight is fairly relevant in in those oh. kinds of decks as well. There's a lot, a lot of spirit decks that make tokens, a lot of knight decks that make tokens as well. So um, if you're doing tribal stuff there, there's some added added synergy on top of that. Um, yeah, it's not the kind of card I'm going to like plug into just a white deck, but I am guessing I'm going to see it pop up in Commander games for sure. Yeah, I mean, Selfless Spirit is played in 10,000 decks already. Like, that's a good analog, I think. It's the type of creature that's going to save your battlefield. But, I mean, God Eternal Oketra decks are going to love this type of thing. Oh, sure. Um, phases everything out, preserves your tokens. Like, I think there's a lot of decks that are going to like Guardian of Faith because it's protection that is kind of playing around with a different way. Like, some of these other protection type of creatures that we see, uh, they don't protect against Rift. This does. And like you point out, Joey, um, this protects against Rift, and then you just get to do it again later. So it's <laughs> yeah. it's very, very powerful. Like, yes, it isn't indestructible, but phasing out sometimes is better. Um, I like this card a lot. I think it's it's pretty nifty. Um, I don't know how many decks going to be seen in, though, but it, it's very, very powerful. Yeah, I, I think for me, it's just like, oh, you know, if I'm using this card to save against a board wipe, then this is probably the, like it's going to go down with a regular board wipe. But it does have interaction against exile or balance, which is really nice. Like that type of extra redundancy for protecting your board is probably pretty necessary. So like you said, with those tokeny type of decks, there's a lot that you can do with this. So it's a pretty admirable white rare, which we don't get to say very often. Well, speaking of white rares here, we have Loyal Warhound. At one and a white for a dog with vigilance it's a three one and when loyal warhound enters the battlefield if an opponent controls more lands than you search your library for a basic planes card and put it onto the battlefield tapped then shuffle um, this is an effect we've seen you know a few times in the past things like core cartographer um, which just goes and gets one i guess it doesn't care about whether someone has more than you but this is one of those situations where if someone has ramped ahead this is a way white can kind of catch up with the creature yep it, it's a great like knight of the white orchid type of card um it's easier to cast it's only one in a white instead of double white so i i like this it's it the fact that it's putting it onto the battlefield tapped like e- white doesn't get rampant growth type of effects and so having this um i think is a pretty good pretty good addition um especially for kind of aggressive low the ground 
white decks that don't aren't playing green. I, I do think that like Knight of the White Orchid can still get like if you've got a Hallowed Fountain, like that is a mm-hmm. really nice thing to be able to get a dual type land, which this does miss a little bit out on. But also at the same time, Knight of the White Orchid shows up in 18,000 decks. So this is clearly an effect that folks really enjoy having. The one thing I would note, though, is this kind of effect doesn't really stack that well. Um, or at least in a way that's effective. Like, obviously, you don't want to top deck a ramp spell or something when you've already got two ramp spells in hand in green, but you can still cast them and you're still going to be this that much further ahead come next turn. It's not great, but like it works. You don't want to have this in hand when you already have top deck this when you already have two more of these in hand or something. So I don't know how many of these we need. I, I don't know if we're at the maximum density yet, but. We're going to get there at some point where there's just more of these than you could possibly want to run because the effect just doesn't work that well in multiples. Yeah, Archaeomancer's map kind of corners that market before we get right. to survey those other ones. Granted, that's a really expensive card, though. So, yeah, the, the, this is the kind of thing that, like, hey, we can only get so many of these effects before we stop being a little bit happy about it. So, totally getcha. Archaeomancer's map is an artifact, by the way. So, uh, let's talk about a commander that really likes artifacts. This is a mono-white commander that may not, or maybe it will, like, peek up into the top five. Probably not since it's mono-colored. But, y'all, Oswald, Phil, Oswald, Oswald Fiddlebender... Oswald the Tongue Twister Man. This is a legendary gnome artificer in white. It is a two-mana 2-2 two, two that can pay a white, tap itself, sacrifice an artifact, and birthing pod it. It birthing pods for artifacts by going and finding another artifact in your deck that has one greater mana value and putting it into onto the battlefield. You can only do this as a sorcery. That is a spicy, cool effect that I'm really happy to see on a white card. Yeah, this is really potent in a lot of different decks that care about artifacts. I mean, it's one of the most popular uh, card types. And so having a birthing pod type of effect for this, uh, there's I, there's so many commanders that are going to want this. I know my Alila deck, for example, being able to sacrifice <laughs> something, tutor up something bigger, uh, that's going to be pretty hot stuff. I mean, even like Osgear, getting all oh, those, yeah. getting artifacts in your graveyard to then make more copies of them. Like there's a lot of play to Oswald Fiddlebender um, and it's not just playing on your tongue and with the word play. <laughs> I mean, if you're in an equipment deck, I feel like it's just really useful to have an option to turn any mana rock that you maybe no longer need into any sword. Mm-hmm. Like that seems <laughs> like that would be something that I would want to do. Oh, yeah, that's pretty nice. Teshar, Ancestor's Apostle, also cares about artifacts coming in and out of the graveyard. Sharoom, speaking of artifacts in the graveyard, can just revive anything you bring back out with this. And I know that this is kind of a tough thing to say about a four-color commander, but, like, this effect is good enough that I, if I had a Brea deck, I would consider it four. Like, building an artifact deck that is four colors, you've got so many options that you usually swamped and you can't afford too many artifact slots. But a Birthing Pod-style effect we've seen historically is a very powerful one. Putting stuff into the graveyard like that like i think that this is actually one that could budge into even those really solidly cemented lists i mean call back to one of my favorite cards to put into like corvold decks or my vivictus deck um ugin's nexus with this is pretty hilarious uh mono white extra turns seems okay Oh, that's delightful. Or you can just get stuff back with Scrap Trawler and Mirror Retriever when these get sacrificed, which is awesome. You can go and find your thousand year elixir to untap this thing so you can do it all over again. Or wait, I mentioned Liquid Metal Torque earlier. Do that with this. You can turn anything into an artifact and then have this guy sacrifice it to go and find Oh man, there's so much synergy here. Like this is really cool. It's a cool commander in its own right, but it's great in the 99. Yeah, uh, this is, I mean, I think the, the one thing I would say is I don't, know if I would want to try this as my commander necessarily. Mm-hmm. Um, it feels pretty narrow in that regard, but it's, yeah, it's just going to show up in the 99 of a whole bunch of decks. Yeah, it, it's a great support card. And I mean, yeah. Birthing Pot has played in how many thousands upon thousands of decks already? And like having a, a similar card to do that, um, I think that kind of lays the groundwork. We know that artifact decks are, are very, very popular. So I think the groundwork is kind of laid for Oswald to find its way into a lot of the 99s of decks. Yeah, I think you're probably right there that like at the head of its own deck, it could potentially, like we saw with Prime Speaker Vanifar, kind of inevitably lead into a combo chain um, or even a stack situation by like immediately tutoring out Winter Orbs. So that's probably something that you can steer away from. But yeah, cool stuff to report here. And again, that's a really good feeling when it comes to white cards. Let's move now to blue, though. And I feel like we don't have as much going on in blue, which is also kind of a rarity. Dana, do you want to tell us about Grazalax? 
uh, Grasilax Ilithid, Ilithid Scholar, I think that's I right. I'm not the only one who struggles with pronunciation All right. in this episode, and that <laughs> makes me happy. Um, one blue blue for a legendary creature horror. Uh, it's a 3-2. And whenever a creature you control becomes blocked, you may return it to its owner's hand. And whenever one or more creatures you control deal combat damage to a player, you draw a card. Now, note that's that's one or more, so it's kind of more like the military intelligence effect than it is a coastal piracy where whether it's one creature or ten creatures poking through, you're only going to get the one card off it. Yeah, Grazilax, it kind of has an analog to a card that I challenged a while back in our Challenge of Stats segment, uh, Cunning Evasion, where whenever a creature you control gets blocked, you can bounce it back to your hand. Um, That effect in its own is, is already pretty potent. There's a lot of types of... Uh, creatures out there that you might want to be recasting. So having that around and then just being able to draw cards is always powerful. Um, yes, it, it thinks that it's limited to one, but like I think it's an interesting design. I don't, it's mono blue, so I don't think I'm going to put it at the head of any decks, um, but it will find its way into the 99 of, of quite a few. Especially Eureka. Like Eureka mm-hmm. is really happy to see an effect like this because if any of the ninjas get blocked, you can just bounce them right to your hand so that they can be more easily ninjutsued out by your unblockable creatures later. That is a very tasty effect for that deck especially. So lots of cool stuff with that, even though it's probably more of a 99 situation. Moving now to another three mana card, Tasha's Hideous Laughter. This is a three mana sorcery that I think was one of the first cards we saw from the Adventures in the Forgotten Realm set. It's a crazy weird ability here. Each opponent exiles cards from the top of their library until the player has exiled cards with total mana value 20 or more. I don't feel like this is like one of the biggest things that will like mill out, oh, an entire deck or anything like that. You could get some good stuff going where maybe it's going to hit just like five cards and then it is not a huge mill effect. It does hit each opponent. This is pretty cool for mill decks, but the reason I want to talk about it is because My mom's name is Tasha, and she wants everyone to know that she's not happy about this name (laughs) and that she will not be putting it into her Dragonload Ojutai deck because it's a mean name. I mean, if if we're making a card for your mom, it'll be Angelic Laughter. Um, That's coming out the (laughs) next Forgotten Realm set that we have. So, yeah. Just give it time. Well, she did She did find out later that Tasha is apparently a very big, like, grand sorceress within the D&D canon. So, like, apparently it's oh. actually like she's making someone else laugh to hurt themselves a whole bunch. So that's pretty cool. I feel like we need to shout out this card because it will be pretty decent in those mill decks. And also, I think the more competitive leaning your deck is playing, this hits a lot more cards on average from someone's deck, which is also a thing to shout. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's going to be good in those mill decks and occasionally... You're going to be matched up against the right person, and you're just going to hit them for like sixty because they're <laughs> they're running an eggs deck or they're running you know so, something along those lines, and you're just going to decimate their entire library just accidentally, and that'll be fun too. Like SRAM and Joyra, yeah. yeah if they're right, playing, yeah. yeah, if they're playing Joyra Weatherlight Captain, which has all the zero mana, you know, zero uh, mana cost, mana value artifacts. Yeah, you're gonna you're gonna churn through their deck. Or if you're playing somebody's playing that Marilyn of the Morning song um ad nauseum <laughs> meme deck. <laughs> yeah, right. It's yeah. totally a gotcha there. So like yeah, yeah, they let you tutor up a, a card, tutor this up and kill him. That's that's perfect. Yeah. Fun stuff. Uh, here's another three-mana card here, and we're actually moving from rare into a common here. You find the villain's lair, a three-mana instant that you get to choose one. You either foil their scheme by countering target spell, or you learn their secrets where you draw two cards and discard two cards. Dana, I know how much you like variants on the card <laughs> cancel, so this is just one more nail in that coffin. Yeah, you just don't run cancel, people. <laughs> 50 cards that are canceled with an upside. <laughs> That'll be our challenge of stats for this episode. Right, Cancel yes. still shows up in too many decks. We know it's budget, but like there's way better versions, and this is a really good one. Yeah, this is very, very good. Yeah, this this one you'll find in piles of draft chaff. It's it's a common. It'll be a nickel. Um, yeah, replace your cancels, please. I mean, and just being able to loot two cards, that's always something decent. Get some card selection. It's I mean, it's fine. It's, it's a good place filler. I, I'm not sure if I'm going to put any decks... But it's just, yeah, it's a cancel upgrade. Please stop playing cancel. Yeah, like Frantic Search, which I know untaps the lands that you use for it, but Frantic Search is still a three-mana loot effect that shows up in 36,000 decks. Like, that last ability is a really good consolation prize if there happen to not be any spells that you want to actually counter. This is a really, really good common, and I'm pretty impressed by it as cancel variants go. This one's really cool. Let's round it out now with uh, leveling up a little bit in Wizard class. Matt, have you attended Wizard class? Um, I did not go to Strixhaven, so no, I did not go to wizard <laughs> class. Um, but there is a wizard class um, 
it's an enchantment. So it's a new type of card that we're seeing, um, or a new subtype, I should say, of enchantments, um, where you kind of get to pick the, whatever class you want to play, um, similar to what you do in D&D with your character creation. Um, so wizard class is an enchantment uh, for one blue, uh, and just says you have no maximum uh, hand size. Then you can pay two and a blue to go up to level two. Um, so it's kind of like a level up type of card on enchantments. Uh, so when this class becomes level two, you draw two cards. Then you can pay four and a blue to go to level three. And then whatever you, and it reads, whenever you draw a card, put a plus one, plus one counter on target creature you control. Um, so it's decent, you know, get some incremental advantage, spread it out over a couple turns. What are you guys thinking of the class cards in general and with wizard class? I'm actually really digging this as an enchantment subtype. Like these are really cool. It's nice to see the progression. It's kind of like level up only you get to have a bit more, um, a bit a bit more fun is what it feels like. There's the, a really cool customization to the enchantment that gets to stick around. And this particular one, I cannot wait to throw it into my elegant deck because I like Oof. having no maximum hand size in a blue deck. I like being able to scry uh, in that deck or just draw cards generally as well. Um, and that last ability, whenever you draw a card, buff up stuff like that's what a blue deck really likes to do. I feel like this probably doesn't go in a ton of places, but it is still a really interesting ability to see, especially for those more controlling decks. And at the end of the day, one mana, you have no maximum hand size. I mean, we've seen from the card Library of Lang, which has a similar effect, that shows up in nearly 7,000 decks. Again, this is a pretty cool ability to have, and I'm really eager to try it out, especially if it can potentially turn into a win condition when I just draw a whole bunch of cards as well. Yeah, I think that the class cards, the enchantment classes in general, are my favorite thing from this set. Um, there are a really interesting mix of the sagas and the old level up creatures from, from back in the original Zendikar set. Um, the, the sagas, I'm also a fan of, but like you can't control those. They're just going to trigger, trigger, trigger. This is something you can kind of use as a mana sink. I have nothing else to do this turn. Um, I have this wizard class out that I played in turn one. Four turns later, you just haven't had any good draws. I might as well draw two cards with it and then move up right. to the next level. And then, okay, well, yeah, now I've got something to blow this mana. I might as well use the five so I can now start buffing my creatures with whenever I draw something. Um I just like the design a lot, and I think this one is just generally useful throughout most stages of the game. Yeah, and it, it, we, do, we do need to point out, uh, you can only gain levels as a sorcery with all yep. these class cards. Um, you can't do it at instant speed, which is a little bit of a downside. But yeah, like Dana pointed out, if you're not drawing anything and you have some extra mana laying around, um, leveling these up, you get incremental advantages from all of them. Um, this is just the first one that we're talking about because it, it really did jump out at, at all three of us. I mean, you can put this down on the first turn to have four mana, I draw two cards, and I have no maximum hand size for the rest of the game. I've heard of worse four mana things to do, and you can also divvy that up if you want. Plus, it's got late game potential, and I really like that. As a way of especially finding a, a way to turn card draw lethal that isn't just a laboratory maniac to win the game, I love effects like this that let you yeah. veer away from that type of strategy. That's one of the things I really love about playing Elegith, actually, is using stuff like Imperial Plate to power up for the cards that I've drawn, and this is another version of that. And so it probably doesn't go into actual wizard decks because I don't think they need it. But in terms of especially mono blue or more controlling types, I feel like this is a really just a great A slam it in there. This is a real fun way to guarantee to secure your strategy and to potentially have a cool late game. I think it's it's also one of those cards where if someone removes it, you kind of feel like you won too. Yeah. <laughs> right? Like, like, like that's a good use of your one mana spell or, or whatever you pumped in with. If someone removes it, you're like, yeah, that's fine. You blew or removed a spell on that. I'm okay with that. Okay. So we're done with blue now, actually, because we've got a lot of black cards that I think we need to talk about here. Starting off with Lolf the Spider Queen, who is not laughing out loud. Teehee. Uh, Lolf the Spider Queen <laughs> is a five mana. <laughs> Thank you for laughing at that, Matt. You make me feel funny. Uh, that, that, was, that was your best work, I think, ever on this podcast. So well played, sir. Did not I expect not. that one. I hope I have not peaked at this precise moment, but thank you. Loth Spider Queen is a five mana, four loyalty planeswalker in black with a triggered ability. Whenever a creature you control dies, put a loyalty counter on Loth Spider Queen. It has a zero ability of you draw a card and lose a life. Nice advantage there. A minus three of creating two two one black spider creature tokens with menace and reach and a minus eight because of course spiders. That says you get an emblem with whenever an opponent is dealt combat damage by one or more creatures you control, if that player lost less than eight life this turn, they lose life equal to the difference, which is a bunch of stuff that I can't even really compute because I don't know about that emblem seems weird, easy to get, and yet tough to get. I'm just happy that you got a card advantage thing that can also get a whole bunch more loyalty just by doing aristocrat stuff. Yeah, the, the ultimate is there's a lot to track with that ultimate, and I'm, uh, uh, yeah. 
just thinking about it already confuses me. But if you are playing some sort of aristocrat strategy or just, I mean, black decks in general, they don't really have a hard time finding ways to trigger and, and put loyalty counters on Loth. Um, drawing a card and losing a life, you have a Phyrexian Arena at worst. Um, at best, you have potentially a win condition. So um, it seems decent. I'm, I'm not sure if I have any decks that are looking to play it, but um, I mean, spiders are, it seems like a, a tribe that are getting a lot of support lately. So if you're playing the uh, Ishkana decks out there, mm-hmm. um, this is a good way to make more spiders. Yeah, where I think it's going to really shine is is those kind of Regna and Krav decks or the yeah. original Tesa where you're trying to sacrifice things repeatedly to to get some kind of other effect. This is going to be in play and you're just going to do the thing you were doing anyway and suddenly it's got, you know, 14 loyalty on it just accidentally. Plus it's making you tokens that are pretty easy to sacrifice. They're two ones, so they're easy to skull clamp. They're easy to sacrifice to whatever you want to sacrifice them to. Um, it's going to do all the things those decks want to do. So I think it's going to really be a, an all-star there. Yeah, I'm not sure that this makes its way into like a regular Super Friends type of situation. But like, the, Dana, you mentioned the old Tesa. Even new Tesa is looking forward to doubling yeah. that death trigger, to be perfectly honest. I would consider this in my Thalese deck because, again, tokens are there and I can manipulate the token production. I'm sure that Alenda the Dusk Rose is also pretty happy to have another mm-hmm. way of taking advantage of stuff dying and creating tokens that you can then sacrifice. There's plenty of homes for an Aristocrat's Planeswalker. And I feel like Planeswalkers are not usually the kind of thing that we've seen too much of in that strategy. There are some that produce a whole bunch of tokens like Tevish Saat, and this kind of fits in alongside them, which is, I feel, a bit more rare as aristocrat strategies go, because you usually want to just like have as many creatures as possible. But this is a pretty admirable one to get, even if that ultimate is confusing. Yep. So let's let's move on to our, our next black card. Um, it's one that I, I can already see Joey putting in... Um, at least a couple decks. Um, next card up Uh-oh. is Vorpal Sword. It is a one black for an artifact equipment. Um, equipped creature gets plus two, plus oh, and has death touch. Um, equips for black, black. And it has this really unfortunate ability, or fortunate, <laughs> depending on if you know, you're playing it or not. Um, you can pay five black, black, black. So three black, um, eight mana total. And it says, until end of turn, Vorpal Sword gains. Whenever equipped creature deals combat damage to a player, that player loses the game. Um, only one mana for uh, equipment like this seems pretty, pretty potent. What do you guys think? <laughs> I love it. I want a lot. I, I mean, yes, I'm putting this into my Veardus deck because of course I am. Like, it's just really great to have a just like... I, I poke you and you die. But also, if your commander has an unblockability effect, like Atrada the Silencer, for example, like this is also really, really dang threatening. I really like this thing, probably more than I should. If your commander has flying, that's probably enough to kill one person most of the time. I I, I very rarely don't have a target in my Sphinx deck, for example, or my Talran deck with flyers. Someone's always open to flying, whether they're playing a green elf deck or goblins or something. There's always somebody you can hit. Um, even if your commander has flying, this is just a, a card that says kill target player pretty often. And that's maybe worth running in quite a few decks, even with no other synergy than just a, you know, some, some minor evasion. Yeah. Matt, your Ukima can't be blocked. You can just make it instant death. Yeah, that is true. I, I'm not a big fan of putting these types of cards in decks, but for those people who do like, yeah, if you're playing that kind of Ukima and Kazer deck, uh, it, it's going to work. I promise. Eight mana to eight mana to kill target player. And not just that, but like this thing also gives the creature death touch. If your commander can ping to do damage or something like that's also fun to throw around. Like, I'm sorry, just I love every little bit of this. I mentioned that Virdus deck. Virdus' partner is Gorm. Gorm has to be blocked. I'ma throw sometimes the death touch onto him so that anyone that blocks him dies. Like there's everything that I like about this card. Uh, it's unreasonable for me to get this excited about equipment. It's pretty rare, but this is a really funny one. That just being able to threaten that activation, I feel like is going to get a whole bunch of really fun moments in game. So this is probably my favorite black card of the set. I'm really, really loving it. But I don't need to keep gushing about it. We can move on. Dana, how about you tell us about Power Word Kill? Power Word Kill is an instant for one in a black. Destroy target non-angel, non-demon, non-devil, non-dragon. I think I got all of them there. <laughs> um, so, so this is something I've talked about a little bit in the past. I wrote an article about this a year or two back about the difference um, between a card being good and this card is good and a card being good enough when you're looking at, you know, 22,000 potential cards to put in a commander deck. Um, this is a very good card. 
I don't know if today, given the amount of good removal spells we have access to in black, let alone other colors, if it's quite good enough. But I'm wondering what you guys think. I mean, the, the single target removal category is, I mean, it, literally every set, it gets more and more crowded. Uh, I don't know if there's enough out there that with like all the all the restrictions on here, like Victim of Night, that's a card that was played quite a bit back when it was originally released. I think it was back in Innistrad block. Um, mm -hmm. And that had, you know, a few restrictions on there. Um, but angels, demons, devils, dragons, like, those are already four fairly popular tribes over the past couple of years and all time in the commander format. So I'm not really sure like drawing power word kill against your friend's Ur-Dragon deck is really going to be a very good feel when, I mean, there's already go for the throat, there's Doomblade, there's, there's a whole slew of single target removal spells. Yes, Doomblade has restrictions also, so just go for the throat. But um, when you look at the, the format and, you know, what, creature types are going to dodge it. Um, Power Word Kill kind of actually gets dodged by a lot of the most played creatures in the format. Yeah, that's fair. Victim of Night only shows up in less than 3,000 decks, and the restrictions on that one are like werewolves and zombies and vampires, which I feel like are far less popular than like, you know, mm -hmm. dragons. Yeah, and, and it's not that, like like Dana said, it's not that this is a bad card. It just, you need to make sure like if, you know, your your friends and your playgroup are playing a lot of Angels and Dragons decks. Like, those are two extremely popular tribes. Um, so maybe just keep that in mind when you are putting, you know, going to put in your deck. Like, it, it's an uncommon in a standard legal set, so there's going to be a lot of them floating around. They're going to be fairly cheap. Um, so just make sure you're just kind of having that, that extra, you know, thought process before you put it in your decks. So let's move away from Power Word Kill and talk about a card that it can't kill, and that's Asmodeus the Archfiend. This is a six mana black 6-6 six, six legendary devil god that says if you would draw a card, you exile the top card of your library face down instead. And then it's got two really spicy activated abilities. Black, 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 colon, draw seven cards, which of course gets changed by that first line of text, so they just get exiled face down, and then a one black mana activated ability to return all cards exiled with Asmodeus to their owner's hand, and you lose that much life. So if you pay the full four mana, you can lose seven, draw seven, just like Grizzlebrand, which is banned because it is free to do that, so this is nowhere near like Grizzlebrand. There's a lot of hoops that you gotta jump through, but this is still a pretty fun effect to try and build around. Like, I don't know about you guys, but I'm kind of interested in activating that draw seven cards ability and then sacrificing Asmodeus so that I just regular draw them and he doesn't keep them in exile. That sounds real fun to me. I like that. I mean, that that's also nine mana to draw seven cards <laughs> with that's extra true. hoops. And like, I, that doesn't really excite me. I'm glad you're excited. Um, like, it's just another card that is really good with Necroticus, as if Necroticus needed oh, yeah. any more help. Um, sorry, Benny. <laughs> Benny Smith, friend of the podcast. I know um, Necroticus is your your bay. So, yeah, yeah, you have a new new partner for your Necroticus decks. Yeah, because that one copies activated abilities from your graveyard, but then mm -hmm. it won't have that ability of putting them into exile, so you can just activate it multiple times. That sounds really, really good. See, see that synergy I'm, I'm more excited about, but, like, Asmodeus being on the battlefield when you activate it, like I, that that seems kind of eh, to me. I mean, it definitely seems like a fun a fun card for your opponents to have out if you've got a mind slaver um, handy. <laughs> I think that that seems like it'll be a lot of fun as well. So okay, that's that's really fun. I think also though, like on the necrotic ooze idea, there are other ways that you can manipulate around this. For example, the commander that I expect will make the most use of this is Marisil because Marisil can exile stuff from your hand or your graveyard and then it also gets activated abilities and this is a really, really nice one to copy. Um, but if you're playing a Soul Tide deck, for example, Experiment Krage might be able to put plus some counters on this and then it gains that activated ability. Again, you probably have to get rid of the Asmodeus at that point, but like, you know, that is still a way that you can kind of go around to get multiple activations out of this ability down the line. I feel like there's a lot of fun stuff to do. Matt, like you said, there's a lot of hoops that you do have to jump through, but it is really fun when you get to jump through them, and that's what I'd like to see. Yeah, um, it, it feels like despite having the text to draw seven cards for three black mana, um, it feels like it's relatively fair considering how many hoops you do have to jump through to really do something abusive with it. Yeah, I mean, if, if we're going to get, you know, some, some drawbacks for the power like we did with Volo, um, I mean, at least there are finally some drawbacks instead of just raw power. So, yeah. <laughs> Indeed. So, speaking of things that are relatively fair, um, we have a Deadly Dispute, an instant for one in a black. As an additional cost to cast a spell, sacrifice an artifact or a creature, and then you draw two cards and create a treasure token. 
Um, you know, Village Rights is a really good card. Costly Plunder is a really good card. Um, this is a, like those, a essentially better version of Alter's Reap, which was already a pretty decent card when that came out a few years back. Um, so strictly better versions of Alter's Reap are absolutely my jam. If you're playing a treasure um, deck of some sort where you're just going to sack your treasure for the additional cost and just replace it with a new treasure, it's just a two-mana draw two at instant speed, which is fantastic. But um, there's just a lot of situations this is really, really useful and um, is going to feel great to top deck, whether it's turn two or turn or two or turn ten. It replaces the treasure. I can't believe yeah, that. Yeah. That's so cool. I absolutely love that. And I'm pretty sure that uh, Guillaume MasterChef also doesn't mind losing a food token to this to just draw two free cards. That sounds real good. Yeah. It, well, it, it, the fact that this effectively costs one mana because it replaces the one of the mana that you spend to cast, like, it's real good. Like, having another version of, like, Morbid Curiosity or Village Rights that we've already talked about, like... There's a whole category of these cards, and this fits perfectly in so many black decks. You're, you're almost always going to have a creature to sacrifice. Um, being able to draw cards off of them, you know, say if they they try to uh, power word kill one of your creatures, uh, this is just <laughs> it's all upside. You, you you can use the deadly dispute to sacrifice the Asmodeus to um, stop the trigger. To there you to, go. Then you're drawing. Yeah. Nine cards, yeah. There we go. Problem solved. Yeah. And and you get a treasure on top of that. Right. Like I just I, I it's, love it's like a cherry on your Sunday right there. It feels real good. Costly Plunder shows up in nearly six thousand decks. So like this is really cool. As an aristocrat's player throughout an unfortunately large amount of my commander career, I do have to say that like usually you want the sacrifice effects to be on creatures themselves whenever possible. Spells are tough to fit into those decks, but even then, there's still a whole bunch of stuff that you can do. I think that this will probably end up finding its home more in those artifact-focused decks, like a new treasure deck or like a food deck, that kind of thing. But even I'm just I'm still I love this. I can't believe it replaces its own treasure. Like that's that's just so cool. That is a great piece of value right there on Deadly Dispute. Well, we're gonna wrap up this half of the set review. We do have a whole another half coming up in our next episode. Um, with Warlock Class. This is the last black card we're going to talk about. So we have one black mana for a enchantment class card. Uh, at the beginning of your end step, if a creature died this turn, each opponent loses one life. That's at level one. You can pay one and a black to go to level two, where when this card or when this class becomes level two, look at the top three cards of your libra library, put one of them into your hand and the rest into your graveyard. Then you can pay six and a black to go to level three, where at the beginning of your end step, each opponent loses life equal to the life they lost this turn. Pretty potent. Once you get to level three, uh, what are you guys thinking about the Warlock class this time? I like that it replaces itself. I feel like of the classes we discussed, both of them that have abilities to like refund a little bit of the cost there on the level two, that's that's really cool. I don't know that it's really too impactful until it gets to that final level. So it does take a total of 10 mana before it gets there. That is a nice effect, though. Like, it's sort of a wound reflection just on your end step, but there's still a lot of ways to manipulate that. Like, if you're in a Yurlock deck, for example, the mana won't be a problem, and the life loss being doubled will be a pretty big boon. And, you know, it wasn't that long ago that wound reflection was a really expensive card. It's gotten a reprint in Double Master, so it's down to the 5 or $6 range. I believe it's much more affordable. But that's still a good amount of money. This is going to be an uncommon. You're going to be able to pick this up for you know less than a candy bar. And that's useful for people who want that kind of wound reflection effect and, and want to stay within a, a budget. This gives you a way to do that. Um, yeah. yeah, it does take more mana to get to that point than wound reflection, but it helps you out along the way. So that's the trade-off sometimes for playing on a budget. Maybe you want two of these effects in your deck, and this gives you a second way to get one as well. So um, it's not one of those cards where you're going to be jamming it into a whole bunch of decks, but it definitely is going to have a role. And I've got at least one deck where I'm pondering adding into it if I can find a cut. Um, yeah, I like this a lot. I, I like the classes a lot, like I said, and this is one I like quite a bit. And and actually, of the three of us, Dana, you're not the only one who's looking for a place to put this into their deck because, again, I've got that Beardus deck who cuts oh, people's yeah. lives in half. And um, 
this seems like chapter three seems really nasty when I'm able to do mm-hmm. that. Like this is kind of a rattlesnake card just by playing it even on level level one when I'm playing it in that deck. So the Punisher style, especially if you've got other cards like Mogus, for instance, maybe would be interested in this or uh, Carebeck the Merciless is another one. Like there are a lot of different Punisher type cards that this might be able to get along with. And mostly I like that it's able to replace itself on that second level for a pretty low mana investment, which just feels really, really nice when something with that much extra potential at the end also is able to cantrip and refund itself, especially with selection included. Yeah. Yep. I, I think this one, like we say how you shouldn't judge Planeswalkers on their ultimate. Uh, I think this card is one that you're kind of judging off of that, that level three. Okay, fellows. So we just went over some of the commanders that we think will rise to the top of the heap from the set and some of the standout white, blue, and black cards that we think will also be pretty popular from this set. There's still plenty to go, so we will have part two of our set review next week. But for now, let's leave off with kind of how we're feeling about this set. Matt, how do you enjoy the new D&D stuff? Even if the D&D stuff is going way over our heads, are you feeling like you like the set or is it kind of like, eh, you know, this is a core set and it feels like it? I don't know where where are you where are you at, man? Uh, so I do like the set, like I, like we've mentioned throughout the entire um, set review so far. Like the the D and D flavor is kind of lost on me personally. Uh, I know a lot of people are very very excited about it. I mean, uh, CAG member Shivam Bot is absolutely jazzed about the set. So like I, I know it resonates with a lot of folks, and like I'm I'm happy for them. Like I I know like Time Spiral Remastered was that for me. Um, mm-hmm. So personally, it's kind of nice to be able to take a set off from like the flavor and being immersed in it. Uh, but that said, like the set still is juiced with so many cards that people are going to be playing in every single deck. Um, we still have to split up over two episodes. Like that should should tell people um, yeah. kind of what we think about it. Like there's a lot of cards to talk about. Like there's a lot of cards that are going to be very powerful. A lot of cards are going to be good. So yeah, it's there's a lot to talk about because it's a, a pretty powerful set. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if I'd call it powerful necessarily. There, there's plenty of good things here, but I, I do think it's a step down um, from what we would see in a traditional uh, kind of magic block set, um, which is fine, actually. Like, I I remember back, you know, say M14, M15 era when the core set time would come in the summer and I'd be kind of disappointed because I'm like, come on, I just want a bunch of commander cards because (laughs) we only got, you know, four or five sets per year and I just wanted more stuff. Now that we get, you know, 26 or 27 sets per year, um, I'm not nearly as bummed out about one that's like just a step back in terms of power because like it gives me and my wallet a little bit of a break. <laughs> yeah. um, as for flavor and stuff, you know, we, none of us are D&D people necessarily. Um, but like Matt mentioned with Shiva, I do like seeing other people be super excited about the flavor, even if it for the most part is lost on me. And I've found myself listening to a couple of Vorthos and the Lore podcasts, like the Vorthos cast, for example, listening to those and listening to the backstory um, is really, really interesting in a way that I, I wasn't even doing for Strixhaven. Like, not that the Strixhaven story wasn't cool, but I've listened to a lot more about Forgotten Realms than I did about Strixhaven. Um, so that part has been really interesting for me is kind of diving more deeply into that aspect of it than I I maybe have with just looking at cards for decks. I, I really like that. I think that there is kind of a, a a neat bridge that is being crossed here. Like if folks are coming to Magic through this, I'm pretty happy about that. I'm sure that there's plenty for them to discover too that is also like being lost currently, but that will be very quickly picked up and maybe that's a bridge back in the other direction too, which is neat to see. I, I do think, Dana, that I do side a little bit more on your side than I do with Matt. Like, Matt, you said, yes, there are going to be two set review episodes. So there is definitely plenty to talk about. But this does feel more aligned with the traditional expectation of a core set than on some of the other, even other recent core sets that we've gotten, um, which is also just kind of cool. Like, there's some stuff here that I'm interested to see, but they do feel like slightly minor, more role fillers in some small areas. For me, I think, honestly, a takeaway is that, like, while I'm not blown away by the white cards, I am happy with the white cards. And I didn't even feel all that much that way about some recent sets. And like, I'm I'm, I'm just happy to see that we've got some stuff that feels like it's going to do some good, gives extra redundancy in ways that white needs it. And Oswald, Oswald, I still can't say his name, but the tongue twister <laughs> fiddlebender man, that guy seems really, really cool. And I'm happy to see that either at the head of a deck or within them. So there's some neat standouts for sure. Yeah, it's... it's um- it feels weird saying that there's a artifact birthing pod type of card and then it's not that powerful like that that alone like <laughs> right to me i i can't reconcile that thought but um, right. i think we all are in agreement like 
there's a lot going on in this set and there's there's definitely a lot to talk about oh yeah no that is definitely going to be making some waves even if the rest of the uh, context around the set is kind of like all over the place. It's hard to get a grapple on, but hopefully we're able to do that with some of these cards we've discussed here and the cards that we'll be discussing next week, because as jazz as we are about some of these, we haven't even gotten to what green is up to. And we know what happens when we start seeing what green is up to. So we'll get to that next week in our next set review. Let's close this one out though. Fellas, if our listeners want to get in touch with us, where is it that they can find you all? Matt. So you can find me on the Twitters at Mathemus55, that's M-A-T-H-I-M-U-S-5-5. And don't forget, twitch.tv slash EDHRATCAST. We are streaming every Wednesday evening, so make sure you tune in. Um, we have guests on every single week. The games are always awesome. Um, it's just a blast. Like, every single week, I, I can't just believe how much fun we have. So make sure you tune in for those games. They're always super fun. And Dana. You can find me on the Twitter birds at Dana Roach. You can hear me on my other podcast, CMDR Central. I'm writing articles for both EDH Rec and Commander's Herald, and you can find all of us together at patreon.com slash EDHRECcast. And I'm Joey Schultz. You can find me at Joseph M. Schultz, and you can find the cast at EDHRECcast on both Facebook and Twitter. And if you've got a question for us, you can contact us at EDHRECcast at gmail.com. Our thanks go out once again to the folks at the Command Zone team who handle the post-production work on our podcast. And we want to thank our sponsors. Once again, they are TCG Player and CardKingdom.com, and we are sponsored by Altersleeves.com. You can find them using the price info links on EDHREC or by visiting CardKingdom.com slash EDHREC or Altersleeves.com slash EDHRECcast to show your support for the show. Listeners, we'll be back at you next week with more data and insights, but until then, remember, EDH wreck your deck before you wreck your deck. <laughs>